We're in the strange netherworld uh, between Christmas and New Year. I'm aiming to make today the first time in six days I haven't eaten gammon. And I was terrified that I would actually lose track of the days of the week and not wake up today and remember that it's Sunday and that I'm meant to be here. Um, So it's a bit of a funny disorienting time. Um, So we have a chance between Christmas time and the new year, between our Christmas preaching and the new preaching series that are going to begin next week, a time to catch our breath, a time to dwell in a psalm this morning. Uh, So let me pray before I speak uh, and then we will get into God's word together. Lord, we thank you that you are a living God who is present among us. And we thank you that you are a speaking God whose word is powerful enough to strip the bark from the trees. And so, Lord, we pray that we would know your living presence and your living word this morning. Amen. We're going to dwell in this psalm, Psalm 103, a psalm that focuses on the compassion that God has for his people. A word on Psalms before we start. Psalms transform Christians in a special sort of way. All of God's Word is living and active. All of God's Word transforms you and shapes you if you're a believer. But Psalms do that in in a bit bit of a special kind of way. Most of the Scriptures are quite clearly in some way God addressing us, addressing His people. But the Psalms, when you open them, they are us addressing God. Obviously, They are God's words, they're divinely inspired in the scriptures, but they're for us to speak to God with. And so they teach you and shape you in a different way to the rest of the scriptures. They're sort of on-the-job training. Psalms train you vocationally. You learn the psalms as you do them, as you pray them, as you read them. You sort of follow along with them. Like how, children, when you listen to your mum and dad pray, I hope that that teaches you gradually how you pray. And it's the same when you read the Psalms. You follow along with them and gradually they teach you how to pray, how to speak, how to think. One of my favorite descriptions of the Psalms is that they are prayers that train us in prayer. So Psalm 103 is meant to train us, lead us along, specifically in how we praise the Lord. So let it take you this morning, let it lead you in learning how to praise God for his compassion. Uh, And you'll see, before we get into the meat of the psalm um, that talks about God's compassion, that's sort of verse 6 down to 19, it's flanked on either side by these sections of praise. Um, And in both of them, David, who's written the psalm, he speaks to his soul. So verse 1, verse 2, Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then the psalm ends with the line, Praise the Lord, my soul. Now, why does he do that? And what does it actually mean for your soul to praise the Lord? It's a sort of familiar Bible phrase, especially in the psalms, but what does it mean? I think often it's a sort of jargony phrase that I don't stop to think about. What does it mean to say, Praise the Lord, my soul? And something it doesn't mean... And I had to have to remind myself of this when I read these words. It doesn't mean that you're trying to summon up some sort of emotional reaction in yourself. Um, Telling your soul to praise the Lord isn't like trying to feel Christmassy 
And if you were like that before Christmas started, trying to summon up that Christmassy feeling that I had up until about the age of 12 and then seemed to disappear, um, telling your soul to praise the Lord isn't like that. Um, we can think the Psalms are trying to do that, I think, like they're trying to make us emotional. You plonk in the middle of a psalm and you feel sort of dwarfed by how enthusiastic David is. He's a bit keen a lot of the time. Um, another great writer on the psalm says, we're always running to catch up with the daring faith of the psalms. I can feel like that. You're thrown into a psalm and David, he seems to be incredibly excited and enthusiastic or he's incredibly despairing um, and most of us probably, if we're honest, sort of hover about in the middle somewhere. We never get that enthusiastic. We never get that despairing or we're generally very happy people who never get despairing or very despairing people who never tend to get very happy. Um, And the Psalms, they should challenge your emotions. They should make you a bit sad at times when you're not sad, make you happy at times when you wouldn't be happy. But they're not here to manipulate our emotions. Praising the Lord in your soul doesn't mean summoning up some sort of um, ecstatic experience. Praising the Lord with your soul, with your inmost being, is more like a resolve. That actually whatever your feelings or whatever your circumstances you will give thanks to God for what he's done. You can see that when David says in verse 1, all my inmost being praise his holy name, we hear that and we think inmost being is this sort of wispy center of myself hidden away somewhere. But the word for inmost being is a really gruesome physical word. In Leviticus, when God's telling people how to sacrifice an animal, it's the word he uses for entrails. So when you cut open an animal and you pull out its guts, you pull out its inmost being. So it could be translated, all my entrails, praise the Lord. My guts, praise the Lord. So it's not this wispy, unreliable thing in the middle of you. It's your guts. It's the bottom of you. It's the bit of you that remains at the end of the day. That's where David wants to find praise. That's where he wants praise to come from, out of your guts, out of your Um, determination that however I feel today, whatever's happened, actually, I will praise the Lord. So with that in mind, that's what David means, what he's thinking of when he talks about praising the Lord with your soul. What is it that he wants his soul to praise the Lord for? What are the benefits that he wants it to remember? See, his soul, his gut is forgetful. Verse 2, praise the Lord my soul and forget not his benefits. So he's trying to point it to something. What's he pointing it to? Well, let's read on verses 3 to 5. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Things in those verses, they're sort of headlines for everything the psalm's going to unpack. They're big pictures of what God's done for us. So we're going to move on into the rest of the psalm and see how uh, David unpacks what's in verses 3 to 5. There are two chief benefits that he wants to turn his soul towards, that he wants us to turn our souls towards. Remember, we're following with David, learning after him how to praise. The benefits that he turns his attention to, we're going to see, are God's compassion in our sin and God's compassion in death. First is compassion in our sin. We go from verse 6 to 12 while we think about this. 
Verses 6 to 12, they throw you into some quite familiar language. If you hang around reading the Bible, you're probably familiar with a lot of the words in these verses. Verse 8, especially, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That phrase is, is possibly the most quoted phrase within the whole of the Bible. So other bits of the Bible quote that phrase from elsewhere in the scriptures, probably more than anything else. And it pops up again and again, so we're very familiar with it. And then, um, having confessed that, David celebrates that God's forgiven his sins. So let's read on verse 9. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And they're words that have made their ways into countless hymns, words that probably appear in your prayers if you're a Christian without you really thinking about it. Um, They're great sources of joy and comfort. Why is it the first thing that David turns his soul towards? God's compassion on his sin. Well, there's no greater benefit in the Christian life than God's compassion on your sin. There's nothing that you need more than for God to be compassionate on your sin. That's probably why... The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Gets repeated so often because we need to be reminded of it so often. Now there's a lot more to being a Christian than just having your sins forgiven. There's a lot more to the gospel than just being told that your sins can be forgiven. But it's Jesus' first priority, isn't it, when the faithful friends bring the paralyzed man to him. They want him healed. What does Christ do first? He forgives his sins. Sometimes, to be honest, I can get a bit bored of always focusing on the forgiveness of sins. Um, there are lots of other benefits to the Lord, so why don't, we, why don't we talk about those? And especially if you're a bit of a sort of bookish theology nerd like me, you think, yeah, well, that's the basics. Let's talk about the other benefits that the Lord gives us. And we should focus on those. Or we can sometimes actually think, I have more pressing issues right now than being forgiven got a material need, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills, or I have a physical need, I'm ill and sick and I don't know where that's going to lead, or we just have the troubles and circumstances of life crowding us in and we think, Lord, I know my sins are forgiven, but what about this other problem that I have? It's easy to get bored or forgetful of just how important God's compassion on your sin is. But that is where David turns his soul, first of all. It is the greatest benefit of the Lord. And without knowing his compassion on your sin, you can't actually enjoy any of the other things that he has to give you. It's the jewel in the crown of the Christian message. It's the the crux of the Christian life is God's compassion on your sin. That's why it's the first place David turns his soul. Praise the Lord, my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all all your diseases. There's not a greater benefit that the Lord has than his compassion on our sin. Think about the images in verses 9 to 12. Your sin can follow you around and justly always remind you that you've done something wrong. So how good is it to know that he will not always accuse, nor harbor his anger forever, or, or treat you as your sins deserve? Your sin can bring you low and crush you down with guilt. 
So how good is it to know that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the Lord's love for you. Your sin can cling to you and the guilt can cling to you. You think, how am I ever going to shake it from me? Well, how good is it to know that as far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed your transgressions from you. No greater benefit in knowing the Lord than his compassion on your sin. But how do you have assurance of that compassion? Great to say it, but again, it doesn't always feel that way. My sin can cling, it can bring me low, and sometimes whatever I do, I can't shake that off. Well, notice before the spiritual truths of verses 8 to 12, David goes through some historical truths. Now, I was a bit naughty, I skipped over two verses. So let's go back to verses 6 and 7. David says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. They're a description of the Exodus story, when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, where they were oppressed, and with Moses as their leader, he took them through the Red Sea, showed himself in the plagues, the pillars of cloud and fire, uh, in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and then finally, when he made a covenant with his people. Covenant is an agreement with promises attached, and God promised that he would be their God, and they'd be his people. And it's that story and the covenant at the end that have revealed to David God's compassion. Look at the end of verse 7. The translators have put in a colon. Um, This is getting into the nitty gritty here. But um, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. What was it the Lord made known in the Exodus, in the covenant he made? That he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And all the language that then follows in verses 8 to 12 is covenant language. They are things that God says about himself when he makes the covenant with Moses in Exodus 34. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love is what he says when his glory passes in front of Moses. So when David remembers God's compassion, it's rooted in the historical events of the Exodus, in things that actually happened. It's rooted in a covenant that God actually made with his people when he told them I will be compassionate to you I will show mercy on you I will forgive your sins in spite of the wrong that you've done the covenant's not explicit here but it's it's recalled and our ears should be tuned to hear it and to see it in the background that when David thinks about God's compassion he thinks about God's covenants God's promises that he will be merciful that he will be with his people. Backed up by the fact that he's delivered them already. How are we meant to reassure ourselves that God's compassionate on us? It's by remembering that he has made promises in a covenant and backed it up with real events in history. It's not actually enough to just say and tell yourself the Lord is compassionate and gracious. What kind of compassion and grace is it that you think he's showing? Because... The Quran begins with the profession that uh, praise be to Allah, the most gracious and merciful. So is he a merciful, gracious God as well? No, he isn't because his grace and mercy are unpredictable. If you're a Muslim, you don't know if Allah is actually going to forgive your sins in the end. You do your best and hope you've been good enough, but it's not a reliable kind of grace or compassion. He can play, they call it a holy trick on you, where you think you are secure, but in the end he pulls the rug from your feet and damns you forever. 
because Allah has no covenant with his people. He has nothing in history to show that, yes, you are definitely forgiven. Whereas the God of the Bible gives us that. When David tells his forgetful soul, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, that's a compassion backed up by the deliverance from Egypt and slavery, by coming through the waters of the Red Sea, by the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and by the covenant that God made with his people at the end of it all. And we remember those things too. Hope they reassure you this morning. But all those things just point to something even greater that God's given to assure us. He delivered us from the slavery of sin and took us through the waters of death itself and gave us not the law but the Spirit and has tied all of that together in his promises to us in a covenant that lasts forever. When you tell yourself, tell your soul, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, make sure you remember it's not just any kind of compassion. It's a covenant compassion. It's displayed in history. It's backed up by promises that God has made. That's what David wants to turn our souls and our guts towards. God's covenant acts and promises done in a real time and in a real place for his people. So we turn to his compassion on our sin. And in the second half of the psalm, moving into verse 13, David makes the very logical step to God's compassion on the penalty for sin, which is death. God is compassionate on our sin and he is compassionate on us in our death. We get a different side to God's compassion in the second bit of the psalm. First part, compassion is sort of his mercy, uh, his forgiveness to the sinful. But in the second part, as we get into 13 to 19, it's his tenderness towards those who are needful. Let's read some of these verses again. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. A very poetic description of how, in the end, death comes to everyone. We all flourish and then fade. Now, some of us might make much of the new year. We talked a bit about New Year's resolutions, and great for you if you've made some New Year's resolutions. I'm a bit more morbid, to be honest, when the end of the year comes around. I don't view it as the start of New Year. I just see it as the death of the old one. Um, Make of that what you will. Um, I'm probably a bit cynical. Um, I won't say any more on that. But New Year's about to start, but I think that the old one is about to die. And you're reminded probably at the end of the year of things that have passed away, people that are no longer here who were here a year ago. I wonder how death has touched your life this year. For some of you, that's a very easy question to answer. Those of us who've avoided a brush with death this year, we would do well to remember that we are a year older, a year frailer, a year greyer, No matter how young you are, whether you are in fusion and you're in this morning, whether you are a strapping, strong young man from YPF sat here this morning, you're a little bit closer to withering and passing away than you were at the start of 2018. The reality of sin is true for us all and the reality of death is true for all. We are helpless against it. It's going to happen to all of us. And yet, like a father for his children... 
the Lord has compassion on us in our helplessness. Verse 17, let's read that together. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. See, God, in his great compassion, he gives us something that will outlast death, that will outlast us. And that is his great love sealed in the covenant. We know it's a covenant love because it's for those who fear him, verse 13 and 17. Those who keep his covenant, verse 18. He gives us something that is going to outlast our short, withering lives. And that is his covenant love. And he gives it to us like a father having compassion on his children. I'll admit that my understanding of that verse has been enlarged slightly in the last couple of months. I became a father 11 weeks ago today. And my little daughter is helpless. When she wakes up in the morning, she just has to lie there and squeak and sort of waggle around and cry until I decide to come and pick her up. And of course I do, because I'm her father and I have compassion on her helpless waggling. And that is the Lord's compassion on us. He sees us helpless against death and gives us his covenant love that will outlast our life into the next We're frail and short-lived, but his love is from everlasting to everlasting. So God has compassion on our sin. David directs himself to that and compassion on us in our death. And David directs his soul to that. That is the other chief benefit. The compassion of God on your sin and the compassion of God on you when you die. There is again more to the Christian life than that. More to it than just be forgiven and avoid hell when you die. But it is never less than that. And you can see why those benefits are so important when you see someone facing death with them or facing death without them. Uh, None of my my grandparents uh, were Christians really throughout their adult lives, but I had the joy of seeing both my grandfathers converted um, towards the end of their lives. One just a couple of years before he died, one just a couple of weeks. And everything runs out when you die, doesn't it? You lose your dignity. You lose your body, you lose your mind. Um, But my grandfathers accepted that with a grace and acceptance I could never have imagined. Because they had something which would last, would outlast their bodies and their minds, and go into death with them. That's what David means, I think, in verse 5, when he says, your youth can be renewed like the eagle's. And I'm sure that any of us have seen it in a dying saint that even in their last days, their youth seems renewed because they have something that will last them into death. I contrast that with one of my grandmothers um, who rebuffed all of my attempts to share the gospel with her until she died. Um, Maybe she did accept Christ before she went, I don't know, but I had very little to indicate that she did. And she fought aging and dying tooth and nail. And if you have elderly parents who refuse to accept that they're getting old, then you know what that looks like. Could not accept the loss of independence, strength, her mind, because she had nothing that was going to outlast those things. Have you seen a 91-year-old woman afraid? It is a sad thing, because... They know they have nothing that will last them once they're gone. But the saint who has the Lord's everlasting covenant love will soar in those final days. 
because of God's compassion on them in death. That great benefit is summed up in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God's throne is established. It's unchanging. It's eternal. In the midst of death, Jesus is seated on it to give you assurance that the Lord will hold you even when you die. Again, our assurance isn't based on how we feel. David does not want to turn us to our feelings. He wants to turn us to covenant truth that God is on his throne and it will last into eternity. Even when you are old and frail and your mind goes, God's throne is established and that's what your assurance is based on. God's compassion on sin, God's compassion on death. They are the chief benefits that David wants to turn his soul and his gut towards. And he concludes in the last few verses with more praise. But he's not just addressing his own soul. Verse 20, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. So he wants the angels to praise God for his compassion. Verse 21, praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Maybe a reference to angels again, but probably a reference to the stars and the sun and the moon, who are God's servants governing the day and the night. David wants them to praise the Lord for his compassion. And then praise the Lord all his works, everywhere in his dominion. The whole of creation. There's this downward movement. See, the angels should praise God. The stars should praise God. All of creation should praise God. But we're not let off the hook because it lands with another praise the Lord, my soul. All of creation is geared to praise God for what he's done. And our souls should be led in that same direction. To praise the Lord for his great compassion on us. The Psalms are ultimately better said than read. So I'd encourage you later on today to take this psalm home. Read it aloud to yourself. Maybe see in the new year with it. And let it take your soul and point it to God's great benefits. Let it turn your gut Godwards. Remember what he's done for you. Whatever your circumstances, whatever your feelings, you can say, praise the Lord, my soul. His compassion in sin, his compassion in death, these things are secure and they're based on promises he's made in his covenants. You can be assured of them because of things he has done in history. Because Christ has been born, lived, died, risen, and ascended to sit on his throne. That's why you can be assured of all these compassions. And the next two songs we'll sing immediately after this, and uh, the final song of our service, 10,000 Reasons First and Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. They are songs based on this psalm, which you can see now as you sing them. You might not have known that before. And they address our souls to praise the Lord. Let me pray as the band come up, and then we will sing. Merciful Lord, as we come from dust and return to dust, show us the face of our Redeemer, that in our frailty we may bless your name and praise you all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.